morning. Last year I had the opportunity to read the story of Corey Tenboom to my kids. Uh, in addition to the books we have for sale downstairs, we have some books in our children's area that you can check out and take home to read about, uh, to read to your children, and they center on some of the heroes of the faith. Uh, Corey Tenboom passed away in 1983 at the age of 91, and she indeed was a hero of the faith. Corey was born in 1892 in the Netherlands, and her father was a watchmaker. And in 1922, she became the first woman to be licensed as a watchmaker in the Netherlands. She lived with her father, Casper, and her sister, Betsy, both of whom she loved dearly. They were all Christians, and their faith was central to their lives. They loved the Lord, and they sought to serve others and teach others about Christ throughout the entirety of their lives. Well, in May of 1940, uh, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands, and as a result, their Jewish neighbors were in grave danger. And so in 1942, the Ten Booms began providing safe shelter for their Jewish neighbors who were at great risk of being sent to a concentration camp or even of being put to death. And so they opened their home and they used their home as a hiding place. And over the course of a couple of years, they provided uh, safe shelter for hundreds of people, most of whom were, were likely strangers to them. But they sacrificed. They showed incredible kindness to their neighbors, um, sacrificing their, their time and their energy and their resources, even space in their own home, and most of all, sacrificing even their own safety to care for their neighbors and to show them kindness. And Corey herself used a part of her own room <laughs> as a place where um, her Jewish neighbors could hide um, and find safety. But sadly, on February 28th of 1944, uh, the watch shop in their home was raided, and the entire family was arrested, along with the shop employees. But the Jews who were hiding in the house at that time were able to hide, and, and they were actually kept safe. But after they were all arrested, uh, Casper, Corey's father, who was in his mid-80s at the time, was offered to be released if he would have agreed to cause no more trouble, so to speak. He did not agree, and he told them that if he was set free, that he would return home and help the first person who asked him. So instead of being released, uh, he was shipped to prison where he died 10 days later. Corey and Betsy ended up in one of those horrific concentration camps. They landed at one called Ravensbrück. And as you can imagine, they were treated horribly. The conditions were wretched, and their health deteriorated. Yet even in the midst of being treated horribly, even in the midst of their own health deteriorating, even in the midst of just shocking treatment, they ministered to others. They smuggled in a Bible, and they used that to teach others God's word. And they showed kindness. And, and even though they were in these horrific conditions, the 
Through the two sisters' teaching and unfailing kindness, many of their fellow prisoners were converted to Christianity. Tragically, Betsy died at Ravensbrook 12 days before Corey was released. And as you can imagine, it was devastating for Corey. It was devastating to see her sister's health deteriorate. deteriorate. It was devastating to see her treated in such a horrific way. And it was devastating uh, to see her pass away in such a place. Well, Corey showed extraordinary kindness before her imprisonment and during her imprisonment, but it didn't end there. After she was released after the war, she opened a home to provide care and healing for those who had suffered horrific abuse at the hands of the Nazis. And in 1946, she returned to Germany and she had the opportunity to meet with two Germans who had been employed at Ravensbrück, one of whom had been particularly cruel to her sister. She describes the opportunity that she had when confronted with one of the guards who had become a Christian and had asked her for forgiveness. Here's what she wrote. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations... I wish I could say I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed for me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that having forgiven the Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks I seethed inside. But at last I asked God again to work his miracle in me, and again it happened. First the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. 
I had forgiven my friends, I was restored to my father. The story of Corey Tenboom is a powerful story, gut wrenching at times, but a wonderful story of kindness, tender heartedness, and forgiveness. Well, we are continuing our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, where we read, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This morning we are going to look to God's Word to study kindness. And when we study kindness in God's Word, the first thing we need to see is the kindness of the Lord. From the beginning, God's kindness was on full display in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam did nothing to contribute to the creation of the garden, yet the Lord generously gave it to him to enjoy. The prohibition against eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was also an act of kindness. We would be mistaken to think that the Lord gave Adam all these good things of the garden as an act of kindness, but gave him the command as a matter of strictness. Now, even God's command was good. Even God's command prohibiting him from eating from that tree was an act of kindness. He was demonstrating kindness to Adam, giving him the opportunity to live under God's loving rule, teaching him how to live in a way that was pleasing to him, warning him against doing something that would be destructive. The Lord continued to show Adam incredible kindness when he created Eve. The Lord gave, gave Adam many wonderful and extraordinary gifts in the Garden of Eden and then looked upon him and said, I'm going to give you more. In, two, in chapter 2, verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man. The man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. What a good and precious gift that he gave Adam in Eve. He gave him a helper fit for him. He gave him a woman who complimented him. He gave him a companion with whom he could enjoy fellowship, relationship, and intimacy. God was kind to Adam, giving him what he probably didn't even know he needed. But God's kindness would be displayed in a far more powerful way after sin entered the world. Of course, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's good command and corrupted his good creation. Yet even after they rejected God and corrupted his good creation, he showed them kindness. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, we read that they were naked and ashamed. In Genesis 3, 21, we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Were there severe consequences for their sin? Yes, indeed. But after he rendered his judgment, God showed them kindness by covering 
their nakedness. Adam and Eve had brought shame upon themselves, yet the Lord was not cold and indifferent toward their shame. He did not sit back and say, well, you did this to yourself. You created the problem, you fix it. No, in a tender moment, he clothed them. The Hebrew word hesed is used many times in the Old Testament to describe the Lord. One scholar wrote, understanding hesed is not a matter of settling on one single term. Its semantic range is simply too vast. Well, the translations of this word include mercy, steadfast love, faithful love, loving kindness, and loyal love. In the ESV translation, which we use, the most common translation of hesed is steadfast love. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord revealed himself to Moses, and we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The Lord is just, and he does punish the guilty, but he shows his steadfast love in abundance. In revealing himself to Moses and the people of Israel, he impressed upon them that he is abounding in steadfast love or loving kindness. The Lord has revealed himself the Lord has revealed himself to his people. The, the Lord has revealed himself to us. The Lord has revealed himself so that we will know him. So we will know who he is. So we will understand his will. The Lord wants us to know him. And the Lord wants us to know that he is kind. He wants us to know that he is kind. He wants us to know his kindness. He wants us to see his kindness. And he wants us to rejoice and give thanks for his kindness. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7, the prophet wrote, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Isaiah recounted the steadfast love or the loving kindness of the Lord. He remembered and recounted the ways the Lord had demonstrated his kindness to his people. He remembered, he recounted, and he praised the Lord for his kindness. And he did so hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. We live on the other side of the cross. Meaning we can look back and see how God demonstrated his kindness by fulfilling wonderful promises in Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul wrote, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, God has demonstrated his kindness to us in saving us. You see, he has done something for us that is far greater than covering our shame by providing clothing. He has cleansed us of our sin. He has dealt with our shame by saving us making us new, cleansing us of all our sin, forgiving us of all our sin. This is the good news. We're sinners. We've fallen short. We've all disobeyed God's command. But in his kindness, he provided a way for us to be saved. And he did so by providing Jesus as the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save us. Unlike us, he lived a perfectly sinless life. And he died on the cross to take the punishment we deserve for our sins. He rose from the grave, conquering death. He ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And now all who believe in him will be saved. All who believe in him receive the forgiveness of their sins. For everyone who believes in him, our shame is removed. God is kind to us. If you are not a Christian, then our hope is that you will understand that the Lord's kindness serves a very important purpose for you. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul gave a warning to sinners who judge other sinners, which that pretty much includes all of us. He wrote, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We are all sinners. We are all guilty of judging others while being guilty of the same, doing the same thing ourselves. We're all sinners. We're all hypocrites. We're all guilty. But God in his kindness has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve by sending Jesus Christ into the world to save us. And God's kindness requires a response. It's not enough to say, that was nice of God to do that. And then continue to live your life the way you want. That would be presuming on the riches of his kindness. That would be taking God's kindness for granted. Friend, if you are not a Christian, you need to understand that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. 
God's kindness is meant to lead you to repent from or turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus so that you will be saved. Our greatest hope, desire, and prayer for you if you are not a Christian is that you will recognize God's kindness toward you and that you will recognize that God's kindness toward you is meant to lead you to turn from your sin, believe in Christ, and be saved. If you are a Christian, then you can look back on God's kindness that he has showed you through the cross of Christ, and you can look forward to receiving the kindness of the Lord for all of eternity. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The Lord is eager to show us his kindness. Brothers and sisters, he does not merely tolerate us. He loves us. He shows us kindness. And he is looking forward to the coming age when he will pour out his kindness upon us for all of eternity. This is our future. This is what we get to look forward to. Receiving the kindness of the Lord without end. So, God is kind, and he has demonstrated his kindness toward us in wonderful ways. We can look back and recount the ways he has been kind to us in Jesus Christ. We can also look forward to our time with him in the coming ages, where he will show us the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us forever and ever. And what we see in the scriptures is that as we look back on God's kindness and look forward to God's kindness, we are called to walk in God's kindness here and now. The Holy Spirit desires to shape us in such a way that we are marked by kindness. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, where Paul gave instruction regarding how we are to live our lives as followers of Jesus. In this passage, we will see the role that kindness plays for us who are followers of Christ. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. I encourage you to follow along. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In this passage, Paul called upon the church in Ephesus to live a holy life. He did so by contrasting the old self of a Christian with the new self of a Christian. A Christian is one who has believed in Christ, and in believing in Christ has been made new. When we believe in Christ, we are putting off our old self, our old way of life, And we are putting on our new self, putting on Christ. This is what happens at conversion. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are made new. And we begin a new way of life. And when Paul said, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he was calling on Christians to live differently from non-Christians. In that time, Gentiles were referred to all those who were not ethnically Jewish. But it was also used as a term to describe those who were pagan. And so Paul was saying, you must no longer live like pagans. He called on them to completely abandon their old way of living. And when Paul spoke of the pagans who lived all around them, he identified the problems with their thinking and desires, with their hearts and their minds. He referred... He referred to the futility of their minds, their darkened understanding, the ignorance that is in them. Clearly, sin had tainted their thinking. Because sin had tainted their thinking, they did not know and understand the truth. Darkened thinking is the result of being alienated from the life of God due to hardness of heart. To be alienated from God means that God is a stranger to you. When God is a stranger to you, you do not know him. You do not know his character and nature. You do not know his will. And you do not desire to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Giving in to sinful desires is what naturally follows when your mind is darkened, when your heart is hard, and when God is a stranger to you. If you are alienated from God, if God is a stranger to you, if you do not know him or understand his will, then you will pursue whatever feels good and right to you. Paul was saying, that is how the pagans live, but that is not how you learned Christ. Speaking to Christians, he said, you learned Christ. You heard about him. You were taught in him. Why? Because the truth is in Jesus. The brothers and sisters in Ephesus had heard the gospel. They had believed in Jesus. They had learned about him. They had been renewed in their minds. Their thinking had changed. Their desires had changed. They went from having hard hearts to having soft and tender hearts. The Lord had changed them. 
And because they had believed in Christ, they had put off their old selves, which were corrupted by deceitful desires, and put on their new selves, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, having been renewed in the spirit of their minds. Their lives had been transformed. Their hearts had been made tender when they believed in Christ. The Lord had done this incredible work in their lives, and Paul was encouraging them and instructing them to live in a way that was consistent with their new nature. You have put off your old self, and you have put on your new self, and now you are walking a new way of life. And brothers and sisters, as those who have believed in Jesus, as those who have put off the old self and put on the new self, we are called to follow Jesus here and now. We are called to live in a way that honors him by following his example. In verses 25 through 32, he gave some specific ways we can live according to our new nature. And one thing we should notice is that these verses focus on how Christians relate to one another. In verse 25, Paul said, we are members of one another. We as Christians have been joined to Christ's church. We belong to him and we are members of one another. So how we follow Jesus, how we live together is directly related to how we follow Jesus. And what we see in the fruit of the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is meant to teach us and reveal to us how our relationships should look. The fruit of the Spirit provides a beautiful picture of how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who are members of one another. And I think we should also notice what he said in verse 30, where we read, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you have trusted in Christ, then you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. And this takes place at conversion. When we believe in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. This means that salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who regenerates our hearts, who makes us new. He is the one who grants us repentance and faith in Christ. And he is the one who seals us for the day of redemption. Meaning he is the one who makes sure that we make it to the finish line. He is the one who guarantees that we will ultimately and finally receive the inheritance that he has promised. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul wrote, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption, guarantees that we will inherit what God has promised. We receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. John Stott said, the sealing took place at the beginning of our Christian life. The Holy Spirit himself indwelling us is the seal with which God has stamped us as his own. The day of redemption, however, although we already have redemption in the sense of forgiveness, looks on to the end when our bodies will be redeemed. For only then will our redemption or liberation be complete. So the sealing and the redemption refers respectively to the beginning 
and the end of the salvation process. And in between, in between these two termini, we are to grow in Christ's likeness and to take care not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord, and falsehood and shrinks away from them. Therefore, if we wish to avoid hurting him, we shall shrink from them too. Every spirit-filled believer desires to bring him pleasure, not pain. He has sealed us, and he will bring our redemption to completion. And now he is at work to cleanse us of our sin and grow us in Christ's likeness. He is working to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. He is at work in us now so that we will become increasingly kind. What we also see here is that he is fully personal. He is grieved by our sin. He is pained, sorrowful, distressed by our sin. So in light of the fact that we are members of one another, and in light of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit who is grieved by our sin, we are called to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And while there are many good words of instruction in verses 25 through 32, we are going to turn our attention to verses 31 and 32, where we read, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We are called to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. We are called to put these things away. This is not how God has treated us. And we know the effects of these things. Have you ever heard the phrase, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die? Doesn't it have that effect on us? It's like Corey Ten Boom said, those who were able to forgive their enemies were able to go on with their lives. But those who were not able to forgive were not able to go on. They suffered the consequences of that bitterness, that lack of forgiveness. But we are called to put these things away through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And instead, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God is kind, and he has been kind to us. God is tender-hearted toward us, just as he was tender-hearted toward Adam and Eve. And as God has been kind and tender-hearted toward us, we are to be kind and tender-hearted toward one another. Our lives together are meant to reflect the kindness of God and the kindness of God goes far beyond being polite and nice. Christopher Wright says, Kindness goes beyond duty. It means doing something you don't have to do, but choose to do. Kindness goes beyond reward. It means doing something you won't get paid to do. In fact, real kindness usually costs something and doesn't expect any reward. In the Bible, kindness is often linked with generosity. In fact, the word Paul uses often had that sense. Kindness could often mean generously providing for another's benefit. That's biblical kindness. We show kindness by generously providing for another's benefit when we are not obligated to do so. 
usually showing kindness to another costs you something. It costs you your time. It costs you your energy. It might cost you money or possessions. Showing kindness costs you something, but when your heart is kind, you're not worried about the cost. You're focused on the good of the other person. It's like the Ten Boom family. They served others. They demonstrated kindness toward others at great cost to themselves, but their focus was not on themselves and what they were giving up, not what they were sacrificing, but on how they could care and help those in need. So when you show kindness to someone, it will usually cost you something. But when your heart is kind, your focus will not be on what it costs you, but on the good you're doing for the other person. Your focus will be on the care for the person, the benefit of the other person. Kindness usually requires you to be inconvenienced. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That Samaritan man was going somewhere. His plan was not to take care of someone else that day. But when he saw the man on the side of the road, he was willing to be inconvenienced. He was willing to sacrifice his time, his energy, and even his money to care for a perfect stranger. That is kindness. You're willing to be inconvenienced. You're willing to give what you have for the benefit of someone else. Wright goes on to say, kind deeds are done by people who are themselves kind by nature and character. Kindness, in other words, is not just a term to describe actions, but a characteristic that describes people. People who habitually behave in a way that blesses and benefits others because that is their character. God gives us the Holy Spirit to shape our character, to make us more like Jesus. He transforms us so that we will not only do kind deeds, but so that we will be kind hearted people. The Holy Spirit is at work in us to change us, to transform us, to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. And in so doing, we will become increasingly kind. And it's through that new character and nature that he is producing in us that we act in ways that are kind toward one another. So brothers and sisters, we are called to be kind to one another as members of one another. The Holy Spirit wants to work in us individually to produce kindness. But he wants to work in us together as a church family, as a body, as members of one another, so that God's kindness will be on display in the way that we relate one to another. God desires to produce this in us so that we will reflect his glory so that we will demonstrate to the world what God is like. God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself to be kind, to be tender-hearted. He forgives us of our sins at great cost to himself. And because he has treated us this way, we are called to treat others in the same way. We are called to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as he has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let's pursue that. Let's pursue this. Let's pursue growing in the fruit of the Spirit. 
Let's ask the Lord to give us truly kind hearts that are willing to sacrifice and give for the benefit of others without worrying about what it costs us, but with our hearts and minds focused on those whom we are serving. Let's pray that our lives together would be marked by kindness, reflecting God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are kind. We praise you. We worship you for your kindness. You have been kind to us. Your kindness has been demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ, whom you sent to save us, to forgive us of all of our sins, to cover our shame. We thank you and we praise you for your kindness toward us. And we look forward to the coming age when we will know and experience your kindness for all of eternity. And we pray that as we rejoice in your kindness, as we look back on the cross, as we look forward to the coming age, that we here and now will live our lives together with kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another. We pray that your Holy Spirit will produce this in us. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.